All right, welcome back to the Green Mountain Sports Roundup. I am Ernesto Sanchez, and I'm here with John Downing and Marty Griffin, and we're here to give you a quick roundup of this week in sports. Gentlemen, how are we doing today? It's so good to have you back, Marty. How's it going? Not bad. Great to be back, guys. Uh, happy snow day if you're in the uh, New England area listening to the show. Um, or New Jersey. Jesus, or- they got like dumped on <laughs> yeah been a crazy few weeks just working and trying to do my little side business and get that off the ground and i kind of bit off more than i could chew and <laughs> yeah shout out to uh mama's boy cooking yeah it's been fun project it was a couple stressful few weeks for sure but it's good to be back <laughs> all right and johnny how's it going i uh, couldn't be better best time of year yeah best time of year super bowl is this week and uh, i'm ready to go let's get into it did you just say you're Brady to go? Brady to go. Let's do it. Yeah, 10th time. Well, well, Marty, do you want to kick us off with our number 69s? I assume you're going to be going with noted hockey player Doug Blatt? No, no, not at all. Dougie Blatt, though. <laughs> that would have, have been a good one right there. Uh, actually, I'm just going to have a little bit of fun with this because I'm tired of digging through linemen and trying to find a player that's worthy of me to talking about. But I'm going to go with a guy who wore 69 for one day. And it wasn't in a game, it was in a practice squad jersey. We're talking back in 2014 when Rob Gronkowski stepped out of the, the tunnel for a practice uh, wearing the number 69. They don't wear numbers on their jerseys back then during the practice squad. But media tried to spin it and say it was signifying their 69th straight home game victory. As we know, Mr. Gronkowski just loves the number 69. Nice. Uh, you, could go, you, could, you could go back to his high school season when he was playing basketball, deliberately missed a free throw so the game would end on the score 69 so he's always had an infatuation for, for that number since it's super bowl week and give a little nod to gronkowski for being back there with tom brady uh my 69 for a day gronkowski also interesting to note johnny i don't know if you knew this no player in the nba has ever stepped on the court wearing 69 nice my up you up <laughs> Thanks. okay so you know, more linemen. Here we go again. The lineman streak continues. But and I got a good one because in honor of it being Super Bowl week, I've got um, a man who's probably most famous for what happened to him in a Super Bowl. Timothy Allen Crumry, former nose tackle, played his entire NFL career for the Cincinnati Bengals from 1983 to 1994. Went to college at Wisconsin. He was a round 10 draft pick in 1983, pick number 276. You don't see that very often anymore. In fact, you don't see that at all because there's only seven rounds of the draft. He was a two-time Pro Bowler in 1987 and 1988. First team All-Pro in 1988, second team All-Pro in 87. 1,018 career tackles, 34.5 career sacks, and 13 fumble recoveries. Uh, He was an anchor on the Bengals' defense, especially in the Super Bowl year, uh, 1988. But we remember him for that gruesome injury of snapping his his leg on on, in the middle of the Super Bowl. And of course, you know, we ended up playing for years after that. But he was never quite the same player. And I think I was a little too young to witness the Lawrence Taylor 
Joe Theismann injury on Monday Night Football in the early 80s. So this was my first experience watching a gruesome injury happen. It happened live on TV in real time, and it was disturbing to say the least. I felt really bad for the guy. And then to go on, and Montana leads a great comeback victory at the end, uh, game-winning touchdown pass to John Taylor. So they take the loss as well. So a tough night. The catch, for, right? Yep, tough night for Tim Crumry. But he's my number 69. And for my number 69, I'm going to go with defensive lineman Jared Allen, who was active from 2004 to 2015. Uh, he's a five-time pro bowler, four-time first-team all-pro, tied for the NFL record with four safeties, and has the record for most consecutive games with the sack at 11 in 187 games. Uh, he had 136 sacks, six interceptions, and 19 fumble recoveries. He is also a avid curling enthusiast, playing in several international curling tournaments. Terrible record, though. He's, it <laughs> looks like he's lost just about everything he's, uh, he's entered into. Uh, but he lost to a gold medal team, so there you go. And then uh, a little bit of a dicey personal history, uh, DUIs and stuff like that. But... I think maybe his most notable accomplishment is he was featured in the 2010 film Jackass 3D, which featured him uh, tackling Johnny Knoxville from the blind side. And I think Johnny might have shit his pants during that sequence. It was it was pretty brutal to watch. So my number 69. Nice. Jared Allen. Okay, boys. So we haven't met for two weeks. There's been a lot of news, a lot of things that have happened. Real quick, I am going to touch on the UFC 257 main card. McGregor, Poirier, obviously the headliners of this event in their second fight against each other with Connor coming out ahead on the first one. This time, however, Dustin tied it all up. Vicious leg kicks throughout the first round, finishing with a takedown and then a second round knockout. Uh, McGregor did not look like himself. Of course, he hasn't fought more than three times in the last three years, I believe it is. Two years, three years, something like that. But it's been a long time. And this is a guy who wanted to fight three times this this year. And then COVID happened. So they, they couldn't get any of the lineups they wanted. Uh, Marty, did you you caught this fight, didn't you? Yeah, I agree. I mean, like I said, he doesn't have you know, the experience in the ring by fighting, you know, sparsely over the last few years, like you talked about. It just looked like a classic case of a guy. He, he threw some pretty good punches and connected on a few in the first round, but those vicious leg kicks just wore him down. And it's something I haven't really seen him endure in his, in his fights in the past and something that goes to show like he just didn't come in prepared. He just He just kept walking right into that time and time again. Ring rust. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's a fine line between if a guy really wants to get back into this and be competitive again, or he's just willing to be boisterous and, and build it up and just take an ass whooping and, and collect a paycheck. I just don't know where he's at right now in his life as far as his career. Yeah, it seems like since he has gone big time, he hasn't really had the same drive and, and passion that he did before. And th and that's to be expected. It's right. It's, Hard to grind when you're riding to the ring in a Rolls Royce, you know, as opposed to just being an up and coming fighter trying to prove yourself. Right. Or putting your whiskey promotion on the same time and tour you're, you're fighting as well, where you're at and promoting another product. I mean, you just 
just doesn't show that his head's in the game focus. to want you know, focus and draw it all in and, and compete yeah. to win. Yeah. Actually, I think the most impressive fight of the evening, and I can't wait to see more from this guy, Michael Chandler, the former Bellator lightweight champ with the first round knockout of Dustin Hooker. This guy came to Rumble and he's ready to take over the UFC. I mean, he already he called out Dana White and said he wants time. Yeah. the top. He wants the top guys in the division. He wants to fight for the belt. Uh, and Khabib actually uh, put out a little shade on him saying that uh, he wouldn't come out of retirement uh, for Chandler. He, not yet at least. He's got to prove himself a little more before he'll, uh, he'll give him a shot at the title. So we'll see. Um, McGregor Poirier part three is definitely in the works. So, you and know, people will buy it and people will buy it. And that's just the they, way the sport goes. They certainly will. So we'll, we'll have to see how everything shakes out there. Uh, but moving right along, Dustin Pedroia, the 37-year-old second baseman, announced his retirement after 17 years in the Red Sox organization, four-time All-Star, Rookie of the Year in 2007, the AL MVP in 2008. He won three World Series rings, was a four-time Gold Glove winner. Uh, he hadn't played since 2019 uh, due to a knee injury. In 1,512 games played, he had 922 runs, 1,805 hits, 725 RBIs, 140 home runs, and a 2.99 average. Johnny, your thoughts on Dustin Pedroia? Hey, man, I love Dustin Pedroia. He's one of my favorite players of all time, and I think the reason is that the one thing you can never say about Dustin is that he didn't give it his all on a single play on every single time he put it, he put himself on the field. He gave it his all always hustling, always trying to keep up the pride of the Red Sox and have kind of a, a Red Sox way about him kind of teaching to the younger guys that you're a Boston Red Sox. That means something. And we, we do things a certain way here and try to create a certain standard. Now I know in the last few years of his career, he kind of took a lot of, heat for not being the leader people wanted him to be, especially after the Machado incident when he said, you know, I didn't order you to throw at him. He just did it on his own. But in my opinion, I think that Dustin Pedroia was a fantastic leader. He led by example. And I just think he's everything you want in a ball player. He was never as big as the other guys. He was one of the smaller guys on the field at all times. But... He was a clutch player, always came through with big hits when you needed him to, and big plays in the field, and was rock solid, consistent in the field. And I just, I loved watching him play, and I'm going to miss seeing him on the field. And it's just a shame that he had to go out that way with that knee injury. And, you know, he said on his retirement conference that he'll never really be able to run again, which is sad. And he's probably going to struggle to walk a little bit. And it's all too bad that it had to come to that. But that's what he I, had to do. I think I, I just we should appreciate what he gave us on the field. And it bothers me when players like him get so much criticism and I get that people have a show to do and he took a lot of heat the last few years. And that kind of bothered me because it tarnished his name a little bit locally. And I don't think a player like that should ever have his name tarnished. I don't think that he ever really did anything wrong. They, they gave him a, a bad name for not standing up for, um, 
Eckersley and the David Price Eckersley beef on the plane ride on the plane to Toronto. And I mean, that was between Price and Eckersley. What is Pedroia supposed to do? And I, I just want to appreciate the player for what he gave you and not what he didn't give some people. So that's the way I'm going to choose to remember him. And is he a Hall of Famer? Probably not. Um, there will be some who will campaign for him, but I just can't see him getting enough to really come close to be, being a Hall of Famer. But he was a tremendous Red Sox, and I'll always appreciate him for being one of my favorites. And getting back to that Hall of Famer issue, uh, it's kind of a moot point anyways because the whole system is a sham as they proved uh, this past week when they declared that there would not be a 2021 Hall of Fame class. So it, this is just another thing that really irks me. I could go on for hours, maybe days about this. We'll, we'll get to it when the Cooperstown... We'll check in in April. In Ju- well, July, when the, when the Hall of Fame ceremony actually happens. and Because they have to redo last year's class because of COVID, canceled it. So we'll see Jeter get in and, and get enshrined. And so we'll re- retouch the subject then when there's not, not a, as much to talk about. But this is a joke. I mean, Kurt Schilling... I get it. The guy's kind of a wacko, and especially on social media, and a lot of people don't agree with his beliefs, including me. I don't agree with all his beliefs. He's a little off the deep end. But as far as what he did on the field, I mean, this is the type of guy that should never have to buy a drink or a dinner in the town or city of Boston ever again. And now everyone around here seems to absolutely hate the guy. He came up just short of the Hall of Fame vote, getting 74.7%, just shy of the 75% needed. And I I just, for me, in my mind, he's the definition of a Hall of Famer. He ended an 86-year curse. And before that, he won a World Series in 2001 with the Diamondbacks, ending the Yankees' dynasty reign they had won five titles and he stopped the yankees and then he goes to boston for 2004 before the season and says we're going to beat the yankees and win the world series and he does that after 86 years of not winning and then he runs it back again in 2007 and they win another world series so he didn't just win world series he stopped the yankees he stopped the yankees dynasty i mean give me a break and the guy's numbers you can't say that they're not good enough. He had over 300 strikeouts many times. He finished second in the Cy Young three times. And he pitched in the steroid era. And he pitched at a time when there was pitchers like Greg Maddox winning all the Cy Youngs. Roger Clemens was winning all the Cy Youngs. Pedro Martinez, Randy Johnson were winning all the Cy Youngs. So they say, oh, Kurt Schilling didn't win any Cy Youngs. Well, yeah, how many Cy Youngs are other pitchers going to win when you have those four pitchers? dominating the game for those 10, 15 years. And like I said, he pitched in the steroid era. I just think that he's a no-doubt Lock Hall of Famer, and there's a character clause, but I think the character clause in the Hall of Fame... In the Hall of Fame ballot, in the in the voting process, it, it comes back from when the, it originally started way back when in the early 1940s, and it's about your character as a teammate. That's what the character clause is, your character as a teammate, and the voters have taken it to meant your character of, of how you've treated the, them, the reporters, and they use it against you now if they don't like your political views or they don't like what you say on social media, and I just think it's not fair. And I, did they did all these voters know that Mariano Vera was 100% pro-Trump guy at the time when they voted him in? I, I don't think they did. So that that's just, I, I digress, but that's my Kurt Schilling piece. And do you guys have anything to follow up on that? I think it's a travesty. I mean, you go back to even like Pete Rose and to other situations where be- baseball is just like this cruel bitch who is never going to let go of a grudge. She's going to hold on to it forever and ever and hold it over your head. 
And nothing has changed in that sport in a long time when it comes to that voting, when, it, when you talk about that character clause or, with, you know, the commissioners wanting a true apology or you to come out and speak a certain way. Yet you knew about the steroid area and you're going to let all these hitters on the other side never get in and walk or receive that award as well. But you you reaped the rewards. You loved all that money, you know, that value coming in and how popular the league was during that time. So you knew what was going on. You lifted the dress. You showed us the truth. But now, like, everybody else has to pay for it, and the league never does, or the writers. So they, when the steroid era happened, it was after the, the 94 lockout and the labor, the, the strike or whatever, 94, and that did a lot of serious damage to baseball. And then the players came back, and they started doing their steroids and everything. And the owners and the baseball writers, they all saw it. They knew what was happening, and they didn't say anything because they knew they needed the home run to be a big part of saving the game. And so home runs was what everyone wanted. So they were willing to let McGuire and Sosa bash away. And then Bond said, well, screw that. I need to bash away too, right? And Clemens said, well, if they're all doing steroids, I need to do steroids to get these guys out. So they all knew it was happening. They let it happen. And here's my thing, okay? Now they're picking and choosing who's getting into the Hall of Fame and who's not. So guys like Jeff Bagwell, and I'm not, I don't want to take anything away from these guys, okay? I just want to say Jeff Bagwell, Frank Thomas, even Ken Griffey Jr. Do we know that they weren't doing steroids do we know? Do you guys know? Do we know? No. No, we don't. No, I mean. Okay, so now we're going to say Bagwell, Bonds. Bagwell was all around it during his time. <laughs> right. I mean, every, right. everybody was falling around him, but somehow You're Bagwell a Texas who guy. was pumping you out. Know. Oh, yeah. Killer bees. That whole that whole, that whole whole era of, of Astros baseball, all those guys. Did Cam, and Eddie, Cam and Eddie got Cam caught and Eddie. The, the, the following year. Dead. As soon as he went to the Padres is when he got busted. Somehow Houston Astros never got investigated. Even though Caminetti came out and said, I was using for multiple years. Yeah. So that's the thing. So now they're picking and choosing, which is a slippery slope on who's getting in and who is not getting in. So they're saying no to the two of the greatest players of the generation, Bonds and Clemens. They're just going to say, delete this era of baseball, which is weird, but they're not deleting it. They're picking and choosing. So they're making it so convoluted. It's like, so years from now, they're going to look back and say, oh, so Ken Griffey, Frank Thomas, Bagwell, they may have used steroids. We don't know. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't, but maybe they did. And, and now Bonds and Clemens aren't in. And then, so there's that whole issue. Okay. So they're probably not getting in. This is their ninth year on the ballot. Next year is the 10th, which is the final year. Um, uh, that they'll have a chance to get in, but the numbers are going down, so it doesn't look like they're going to get in. It's just probably not going to happen for them. But next year, Alex Rodriguez and David Ortiz go on the ballot, both steroid guys. And now A-Rod has repaired his image, but Big Poppy has a, has, a, has a great image in baseball. I'm telling you, he's getting into the Hall of Fame. And this is a whole new conundrum that we're going to get into with the Hall of Fame. So now you're going to let David Ortiz and maybe A-Rod in, but you're keeping Bonds and Clemens out? Like, how, like, you can't just pick and choose. That's what I'm saying. You have to either say you're all in or you're all out. Sorry, Ernesto, go ahead. From my perspective, and this, this should be the last thing we say on this until June, <laughs> but... From my perspective, the Hall of Fame is a museum. It's a museum of baseball, and it should tell the story of baseball through baseball's greatest players. The Love good, that. the bad, the ugly, the high points, the low points, everything. You should know when you walk through the halls of Cooperstown that 
you know, they should have on the plaques the whole story. They mm-hmm. you can include the fact that they did steroids and that tarnished that could, that ugliness can be part of the story. It's still part of the story. And it's sad and out of touch and terrible that these stars of the game are being swept under the rug in this way and the true story is not being told and, and presented. And so when you write your history to have a certain narrative, it, it kind of becomes really disingenuous. And, and to your point with David Ortiz coming up next year and A-Rod and some of these other guys, it's going to be really interesting to see where the conscience of baseball falls. Well said. I, I you make excellent points and I, I agree with them all. And it, it's just a shame And I don't want to be like, oh, poor Barry Bonds, poor Roger Clemens. You know, they knew what they were doing, but so did all the other guys. And I just think that it's a slippery slope. And and I think it's either you got to you got to do either an all or nothing, because then you're just picking and choosing based on hearsay. Guys you like, don't like. And that's not really fair to anyone. And you're you're messing with the history of the game. But yeah, you Ernesto, I like the way you said it. So let's just leave it at that. Uh, One more quick baseball note, a rest in peace to baseball legend Hank Aaron, uh, who passed away earlier this week. The original home run king maybe still is the home run king. I mean, I guess if we're deleting Barry Bonds from history, which is, I guess, what we're doing, even though I I don't wish to do that. Um, So Hank Aaron's 755 career home runs is the record for most home runs uh, from a hitter in Major League Baseball history, kind of. I guess, <laughs> but I I don't want to make it about Aaron versus Bonds because Aaron was a tremendous player, a tremendous black athlete. And, um, you know, it's Black History Month. And I just think uh, he, he was a great player and he deserves uh, all the credit that he got and was due. And one more quick Black History Month note. The Bruins retired Willie O'Ree's number 22 uh, jersey. Hung in the rafters. Willie O'Ree, of course, breaking the color barrier in the NHL uh, back in the 60s. So good on the Bruins. Long overdue. Okay, let's get into football, boys. Uh, There's a lot of news, a lot of changes that happened in these last couple weeks. A bunch of coaching hires. uh, So we'll go through those pretty quickly here. And just give me anything if you got it. We'll start with a couple of uh, coordinators, the Rams hiring defensive coordinator Raheem Morris and Anthony Lynn going to the Lions to be their offensive coordinator. Interesting, of course, because of some recent trades that have happened, but uh, we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. The Steelers promote their quarterbacks coach, Matt Canada, to be the offensive coordinator. I'm just happy to see Randy Feekner gone. This is going to be not a new offense. By all accounts, Ben will be back next year. Everybody's on the same page that if he's going to be back next year, that they're going to need to redo his deal. So let's see if they're able to come up with something there. But for sure, the offense won't be changing. Just the play caller will be. And it's still going to be probably a lot in Ben's hands as Ben goes. So will the offense. And this is a guy who said he would restructure anything to make that happen, too. So I don't think, like you said, you're going to see much change at all on the offensive side. And then for head coaches, this was several weeks ago, but we never talked about it. The Jaguars hiring Urban Meyer 
who has never coached in the NFL, of course, he's a college coaching legend, will likely be taking Trevor Lawrence and shepherding him through his first few years. So, Johnny, how do you feel about Urban Meyer making the jump over to pro? I've never liked Urban Meyer being an Ohio State hater. Uh, University of Florida. I never liked them either. Um, I think Urban Meyer has 46 arrests under his watch as a head coach. So he's never been one to run a clean program. But with that said, it's it's about time that one of these college coaches comes into the NFL and actually has some success. It's been a long time since we've seen that. I think the first name that comes to my mind for a successful college coach well, Carroll was in the NFL first. He was with the yeah. Patriots in the 90s I was uh, before Belichick, Kelly. and he was successful. He made the playoffs. Um, I was going to say Jimmy Johnson. I mean, was Chip Kelly really a su- success? I mean, that roster was uber-talented, and I think they always did less than what they were expected to do, right? Right. The Chip Kelly teams. So, I, I mean, I, I'm looking at, like, success as, like, you know, success in the playoffs. And for me, that's Jimmy Johnson. I mean, so it's that's we're talking 25 years since that's really happened. These college coaches come into the NFL and they have failed and they have failed miserably. And I'm not sure that it's a great situation with the owner, Shad Khan in Jacksonville and Urban Meyer. And uh, I think Trevor Lawrence is a once in a generation or multiple generation type quarterback. But as we know, the roster needs a lot of help and I just don't this, have the faith yeah. that Jacksonville's going to figure it out. So it remains. This is to be also seen. when uh, Chad Khan also said that he wants to take more control over the personnel this season, whatever that means. Uh, you know, follow step in the Cowboys' uh, footsteps when owners get involved in general management and, and coaching. That would never bode well for your team, hasn't for us for over 27 fucking years. And I cried today that Jimmy left. Uh, that was a rough day in Cowboy Nation, but. Yeah, Urban Meyer, character-wise, don't like the guy. It seems like when the season gets tough, he talks about his health, and it comes into migraines and headaches and blood pressure, and he's got to step away from the game to rest. And You know, it's like playing jump rope. And you're just trying to find that right time to come back in and, and make a name for yourself, and I think he thinks this is his time to do so. But it's, it's going to be interesting to see how he reacts to what could be a possible failing season come out the first maybe two years Maybe not. Maybe Jaguars jump off on this, but I am not a fan of this pick. Uh, I've never been a fan of Urban Meyer whatsoever. It's not a ready-to-win situation. It is a no. start starting from scratch, starting from zero type situation. And I know in You're- Florida, he kind of started from scratch. You know, in Ohio State, it was almost ready-made. But I'm not sure Urban Meyer is the guy to start from scratch, but we'll see. He's inheriting Trevor Lawrence. But what does that mean for a kid who has done nothing but win since high school to get into Jacksonville and, and work with a guy in, in a program and, and have to suffer losses and deal with, I don't know, his character as well. He's just kind of a flashy kid, and he's been you know, praised in that, in that area, in that, in that part of the country. So he, he's going to have a huge fan base coming out of that being in Jacksonville and a lot of pressure on his shoulders to, to lead that franchise as well. So it's going to be interesting to see how – those two key people for the Jaguars react in the next couple of seasons. So the one thing that comes to mind is when I was listening to Urban Meyer's press conference, he was saying that 
he had started studying the NFL real hard in the last six months. I'm like, and then to me, I'm like, wait, you've only been studying the NFL hard for the last six months. That's it. Six months. I'm like, I've been studying the NFL for a lot longer than that. So I, w- I, w- <laughs> I would personally like feel better if Trevor Lawrence was under the tutelage direction of someone. At least it's been around the NFL for a lot longer. Do you know what I mean? Someone who's yeah. seen all the, the different schemes of the NFL, who knows what, we can tell Trevor Lawrence what to expect uh, in year one, year two, how to, the, the progression that he needs to expect. I feel like Urban Meyer isn't really the guy to guide Trevor Lawrence, but I could be totally They'll both wrong. be learning at the same time. Exactly. Well, next we have the Jets picking up the top coaching candidate uh, for my money. Really hit it out of the park with this one, picking up Robert Salah. I agree. Seems good. I don't have anything negative to say about this guy, so that's a good thing. Jets seem to uh, be in the process of of turning this boat around. And if he can help them get Deshaun Watson, then that's that's already a checkmark in his favor. So we'll see. Mm -hmm. The Falcons hire former Tennessee offensive coordinator Arthur Smith to be their head coach. Could be good. I do think that he did good things for Tennessee and their offense while he was there. So it could be good. I just feel like Atlanta's kind of been in a holding pattern of sorts. So it's, it is time for them to move forward. And I, I don't know that he's the guy, but we'll see. And then a pair of young bucks uh, going to the Chargers and the Eagles. The Eagles picking up... 39-year-old offensive guru Nick Sirianni and the Chargers picking up 38-year-old Brandon Staley. Johnny, you think uh, we got the next McVay here? Okay, well, I, I really like Staley. I like what he did with the Rams' defense a lot, and I think that the Rams are going to miss him. So I, I really like him. As far as Sirianni goes, comedy skit of the day. His first quote, the first part of being smart is knowing what to do. And he also says, less thinking equals talent takeover. We're going to have systems that are easy for us to learn, complicated to the defense. Less thinking equals talent takeover. I mean, what? this guy, he's going <laughs> to, Philadelphia is having a field day with this one because how, you, you need to be able to communicate to players. And the way he <laughs> talks is just, he's not going to be able to stand up in front of the team and, and give make them understand they're all going to be poking fun, laughing at him. And like, I heard a cube to talking about him the other day. He's like, Oh yeah. W- when we had uh who was the guy on the Broncos, Vance Joseph. Remember when they did the Mexican reporter on the sideline, Vance Joseph is having oh, the time yes. of his life. A keep to was saying that they used to make fun of him in the meetings because he wasn't able to control the room and he was always kind of scatterbrained. And I feel like this is exactly what we have here with Sirianni and the Philadelphia media is brutal and they are already have a, having a field day with this poor guy. So he's already coming in with a disadvantage as not being able to communicate well. So that's a shame. Maybe he's great. Maybe he's a good genius and he's going to be just a good mind and really help out the Eagles. But it's not a good start. He's got a lot to overcome. So, Speaking of press conference quotes, we have uh, Dan Campbell. <laughs> in, uh, Just keeps getting better. <laughs> for the Detroit Lions. He says, my job is to get this city back on its feet, not just win games. To that I say, did somebody mislead him in the interview? Because his job is to win games. 
the city of Detroit is actually doing pretty good. It's not the 80s. The city is not in, in, in tatters. The stadium is built. His one job is to win games. He doesn't need to worry about the city. This is a quote. So this team is going to be built on, we're going to kick you in the teeth. And when you punch us back, we're going to smile at you. And when you knock us down, we're going to get up. And on the way up, we're going to bite a kneecap off. And we're going to stand up, and then it's going to take two more shots to knock us down. And on the way up, we're going to take your other kneecap. We're going to get up, and then it's going to take three shots to get us down. And when we do, we're going to take another hunk out of you. Before long, we're going to be the last one standing. That's going to be the mentality. Seems like there's a lot of getting down and being down like why can't why can't they just get, go into it like the chiefs do and just get up get up quickly on the opponents and beat them down from the start seems like there's a lot of being knocked down i want to see a physical diagram of what he just described <laughs> all right uh, I mean, and then how long is that gonna last in detroit i, I mean the players were, were annoyed with patricia when he first came because patricia was a hardo when he first came and Dan Campbell was a hardo when he was in Miami. That act only lasts like five minutes to these NFL players. They it doesn't it just doesn't resonate. So he, we'll, he, see. He re, well, he resonates like a construction like foreman who's going to be a part of demolition because that whole thing's coming down. It's brutal. <laughs> it's brutal because you want to see some new teams succeed in the NFL, but it seems like these teams make similar the same mistakes over yeah. and over again so well we're, we're gonna get we're gonna get into this this trade here in a second who we're gonna talk about but you're talking about a team who's gonna get you, you're gonna use those limited picks that you have left and, and make the best out of the situation nothing in that in that personnel that front office screams i know what the fuck we're doing finally our last coaching hire the texans picked up david cully who you ask uh <laughs> that's bill's former quarterback coach when Allen and his rookie year was terrible. Uh, and then the passing game coordinator uh, for Baltimore this year, they were hashtag not good at passing. Um, so Deshaun Watson cannot be happy after not having a say in the general manager decision. Now I'm sure David Cully wasn't at the top of his head coach list. Another team that's making all the wrong moves, angering their number one asset, their franchise quarterback, to the point where I saw something about Watson saying he was willing to sit out the season if he's not moved. So he's demanding a trade, obviously, from the team. And the owner, Cal McNair, is just a a nutball, and he's easily persuaded by others. And that's why Jack Easterby, who was the former Patriots character coach, who went on to Houston a couple years ago, he's finagled his way up to the top of the food chain in Houston because he's been able to persuade Cal McNair that he can get the job done. And unfortunately, Watson doesn't agree. And Watson is friends with Mahomes, as a lot of you know players are friends with each other. And Watson just wanted the team to interview Eric Bieniemy, the Chiefs offensive coordinator, and they didn't even interview him. They just went and they hired a GM from the Patriots, which is like, oh, great, Watson says, because we had so much success with the former Patriot, Bill O'Brien. Let's hire another one. And so they hired Nick Casario, the GM, and he comes in and he hires the head coach. They don't even in- interview Bienemy. Uh, they tell Watson that he's going to have a say in all these job searches for the GM, for the head coach. 
And that was just lip service because he actually didn't get a say. And so when you say that you're going to be able to, you're going to be involved and then you don't have him involved, I mean, what does that say to you as a player? And so now the player is demanding a trade. The team is saying they're not going to trade him. Now Watson says he's going to willing to set out. And it's just a mess in Houston. You're talking about a huge fan base in Houston. Now you as a city, you've let go of James Harden. And now you're going to run Deshaun Watson out of town. You are just losing a lot of your fan base through this whole situation right now. This, both those franchises are just making dumbass moves right now. And it sucks for Houston to have to go And Westbrook. That. Yeah. So it's like a little bit similar to losing Mookie and Brady. Losing Somebody Harden and Watson. Something about that humidity down there or something. Yeah. I don't know. Man. Johnny, if I were to ask you who was coming back on a trade with two first rounds, a third round, and Jared Goff before this week, who would you think was coming back in that trade? I would think that that's probably Deshaun Watson, but I guess I'm wrong. I know I'm wrong on that because that's not the, the answer. He didn't get traded. But I guess what I realized is that Jared Goff is just viewed so poorly around the NFL that he's now the Brock Osweiler. Remember, <laughs> well, years ago, yeah. the Houston Texans tr- wanted to trade Brock Osweiler to the Cleveland Browns. They had to attach a first-round pick just to get rid of him, and that's exactly what the Rams have now had to do. The, the, the reason the cost was high in that deal is because Jared Goff is looked at so poorly in the NFL that they had to attach those extra draft pick compensations for Detroit just to take him. And so it's like, whoa, what what went went so wrong with Jared Goff? And you're absorbing that $134 million contract. I mean, first, and then let's get back to the source here. So when the Rams first drafted Jared Goff, they moved up in the draft. So if we're talking about what the Rams put into the cost of Jared Goff, they put in four first round picks over the years between moving Mm -hmm. up to draft Goff and now having to trade Goff. Four first-round picks, two second-round picks, two third-round picks, and they gave him a $180 million contract, which they haven't paid him all of that yet, but they have paid him $40 million for the last two years. And now they're just deciding that they're cutting bait with Goff, and you made a Super Bowl with the guy. You won a playoff game this year with the guy. So what went so wrong with Jared Goff, and what did he sleep with McVay's wife or something? I don't really <laughs> understand. You've okay. got so much invested in this guy, right? Like, how can you just, yeah. it's, it's schizophrenic of the Rams organization to just be like, okay, we're doing, we're investing this, we're investing this, we're investing this, and now we're done. And now there we're are gonna go- rumors. There are rumors out there that Goff had texted that he would quote smash on McVay's girlfriend. Really? That's what I, you know, it, I mean, that's the only the thing I could very think of. dregs of the internet, but that's the only I have thing I could read think it. of, right? Yeah. Because but- that's, you well, invest Goff, that much in a guy, you ha- you can't just cut bait like that. He, he, you know, he studies film. He's a rat. He learns systems. You know, he's a tactician in a way of like he's going to make the right read. But McVay just wants that gunslinger. He wants somebody who's just going to go downfield, downfield, and just give it his all. And we, we all know that Goff just gets kind of like weirdly skittish and holds on a little too long and yeah. seems Grips immobile at times. Tight. and. I think McVeigh and the Rams just know, like, as a long, you know, slow release. Yeah, we just know that you're gonna have to have somebody that to compete with the Rodgers and the Mahomes and the Russell Wilsons and willing to get out there and, and extend a play and sell it and take chances. And I don't think Goff ever really wants to take a lot of chances. When he does, he just never seems comfortable with his choice. 
I cannot uh, wait to see Matt Stafford with a good team around him throwing the ball for the Rams. I mean, I think this is going to be awesome for the Rams. I just feel <clears> they like they really put themselves in a pickle though, because they haven't had a first round pick in quite a few years and they're not going to have one in for an, quite a few years to come. So once 2024 comes, it'll be eight years since their last first round pick, unless they acquire one in the coming, in the coming years. But I, I have always thought McVay was the kind of coach who wants to hold the quarterback's hand, talking to the helmet and kind of guide him on where to go, kind of cut the field in half, do a lot of bootlegs. You know, that way he only has one or two reads, kind of like what Shanahan does and what LaFleur wants to do with Rodgers is kind of simplify the game for the quarterback. But maybe not. Maybe maybe, maybe he's taking a shift. I, I, I'm not really sure. I just think that he he sees it, you know, with Buffalo coming up. Kansas City is going to be right there where they are. Murray down in Arizona, like he just knows. He's got one thing a lot of these teams don't have because they got those premier quarterbacks. He's got a really great defense. I think he just knows it's time to win now. He's got maybe a one- or two-year window with this defense Mm. to get in there and and get that championship. They have so much invested in that team as far as, you know, because like we Ernesto mentioned about giving up the first-round draft picks for Jalen Ramsey, and they have uh, Aaron Donald in his prime. So they have so much invested in the team that they need to win now within the next year or two. And so Matthew Stafford comes to goes to L.A., but he goes to L.A., as quarterbacks with at least 12 starts in the NFL, he is the 32nd ranked quarterback as far as win-loss record percentage. Yeah, but that's so in Detroit. That is in Detroit, but I'm just saying those are the facts. So He also has five 5,000-yard seasons. Okay, we. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm I, just I, saying I, he I, has been a diamond in the rough in Detroit, and yeah. I think – with a good team around him, we could really see, we could really see him shine. He somebody on. really, yeah. Pressure's on because now, thirty-second uh, ranked quarterback as far as win-loss percentage. So he hasn't been a winner, but he has had talent around him. You can't you can't say he hasn't because the Hall of Fame is coming up Saturday night, and guess who's going to be getting in first ballot? The receiver he had for years, Calvin Johnson, and he's also had Marvin Jones, Kenny Galladay. So he can't say that he hasn't had weapons. Has he had bad coaching? Yes, but has he had weapons? Yes. I was surprised too. A little quick side note because we got to move on. But I was surprised that the Colts didn't make a play here on this guy as well. They had the cap room and the ability to flex and flex and get him in a win-ready team. That's a dome for Stafford. It just seemed kind of like the right fit for a guy like that. They didn't have two first-round picks, a third round, and Jared well, Goff though. Carolina was the closest. <laughs> so. Yeah. Carolina offered uh, their eighth overall pick, which I would have taken if I was Detroit, um, but they didn't. And so Carolina made an offer, Denver made an offer, and I believe Indy made an offer, New England made a pathetic offer. Oh, and one more, just a little to boot, is Matthew Stafford had a one-team no-trade clause, and that was to the New England Patriots. So um, I think a little bit later we'll get into... How to Deal with the Aftermath of a Dynasty, written by uh, Marty Griffin, <laughs> a Cowboys fan. And I think that this is just one of those things you're going to have to start accepting, is that players do not want to come to the organization when it is in limbo and things aren't looking too healthy for you, no matter who's coaching your team. I think it's a sad state of affairs. <laughs> when the 32nd quarterback, as far as one loss percentage goes, says, yeah, there's one team I don't want to go to, and that is you, Patriots. 
And now, <laughs> and now today you got the Patriots bobos coming out defending the wall saying, well, we didn't want him anyway. He's a losing player. Well, you still offered a second round pick and JC Jackson for him. So you did kind of want him. You just didn't want to pay the price and that, and he didn't want to go there. So let's not, let's not uh, rewrite history here. Patriots fan. You did want him. He didn't want you. So that's how it well, Johnny, right. Johnny, you seemed all primed up and ready to go. So, <laughs> and let him have it. You, you said last time we got together that Tom didn't need this last win. But after the championship round has now been completed, Tom Brady is on his way to his 10th Super Bowl. It's official. Put it on the marquee. The Patriot way was the Tom way, not the Bill Belichick way. Well, that is what Amendola is on television spouting off at the rooftops. Yesterday and today, Amendola is making the rounds. And you can bet your ass he has been waiting years to get his payback on the Patriots for this. Because they dicked around with Amendola on the contract year after year after year, making him restructure, saying they would get him back on the back end of the contract. And when it came time for them to finally pay Danny, they said, yeah, we're not interested. They said good things about him. And in fact, one of the quotes Belichick said was, when you look up in the dictionary a picture of a good football player, you'll see a picture of Danny Amendola. And that was right before they said, yeah, but we're not going to pay you what we promised you. And then Amendola said for him and his family, they <laughs> they got offered more money to go play in Miami. And then he moved on to Detroit. But he's been waiting years to get his payback. And so yesterday, Amendola goes on TV. I think it was Fox. And he says, when you look in the dictionary at the Patriot way, you're going to see a picture of Tom Brady, not Bill Belichick. So. Amendola's had that one in his back pocket for a very, very long time. Listen, here's my new hot take. And this has been developing, and I think I kind of just came up with the uh, finishing touches of it for it today. Guys, I think Bill Belichick held Tom Brady back from winning more. What? Yeah. (laughs) I I do. I do. So listen to me. And I don't want to get into this too much because I have so much other stuff to get into. But in those Super Bowls that they lost, right, against the two Giants ones, in each of the three Super Bowls that Brady's lost, Brady drove them down the field and and scored a touchdown to give them the lead with under three and a half minutes to go in each of those three losses. So all the the Patriots defense, Belichick's vaunted defense has had to do was Hold the other team, not just from scoring a field goal, he allowed touchdowns in one, two, three of those Super Bowls to have them lose. And yeah, the one of those was the helmet catch, dude. <laughs> there, mean, there were unbelievable plays in all was, of them. There were. That was God himself coming to smite the Patriots. <laughs> but then, the, and then there was just, so those are just three Super Bowls, but then there's championship game losses, like the year in 2015, they had to play at Denver because they treated Week 17 Miami game like a layup, and they ran Steven Jackson 50 times into the ground and lost, and they lost home field advantage, so they had to play at Peyton Manning. And they lost instead of having it in New England when it should have been in New England. There's the 2006 AFC Championship game where they were at Indianapolis with a 21-3 lead at halftime. And they, Brady was playing with an absolutely wretched roster. And Brady led them that far, and they just couldn't get over the hump. And Brady's and Belichick's defense blew the lead in the second half. So I just that's my opinion, and I know it's a hot take, but I think that Belichick is not only not the coach we, that he thinks he is, He's actually worse, and he's held Brady back. Oh my God. He's held Brady back. So let me ask you guys a question, okay? 
Were the Patriots and the Patriot way, was that anything more than just a team that got lucky drafting the greatest quarterback, one of the greatest athletes of all time in round six in the year 2000? And then when Drew Bledsoe got injured in 2001, week two, it forced Tom Brady onto the field. So were the Patriots ever more than anything than just a team that got lucky? You see something in drafting in drafting a guy. You have him there. You didn't know you're going to get him so quickly or have to put him into the system so quickly. And I think yeah, I don't want to rob Bill Belichick and the coaching staff of of how they developed that team and and some of the players they brought in season after season to help you know just get them to that next level to to know they're going to make the Super Bowl and compete to win those years. But I don't think it got lucky. I think that's a mixture of fucking work ethic that I do think that Tom learned and it was instilled by Belichick in the system in the, in the way early in his career. But I think what happened over the years is Tom remained hungry, was always willing to learn, was always willing to accept and change and adapt, whereas Belichick is just thinking he is just the mad genius and everybody needs to evolve around him rather than the latter. And he needs to adapt nowadays and either walk away from the game before it gets too late for him, he tarnishes and puts an, you know, takes another black eye or, or, or slap on the face. But I, I think in a lot of ways, as Tom, as throughout his career, has always wanted to win every year, no matter what it took, what it takes, and where Belichick is just like, this is our system, we're going to live or die by it. Right. I'm not crazy, right, okay? I know that Belichick is well, a good coach. I know he's one of the best coaches of all time. I'm not going to deny that. I'm not going to, you know, say that. I just think he's overhyped. And... You guys think may think I'm being harsh. Patriots fans are going to definitely say that I'm being super harsh in this situation. But the Patriots and Bill Belichick, they started this. They started this whole thing, the Brady versus mm-hmm. Bill Belichick. They, and you know why they started it? Because when you look at other teams, you look at Kansas City, do you go, is it Mahomes or Andy Reid? When you look at the Steelers over the years, do you say, is it Tomlin's system or is it Big Ben? When you looked at the Cowboys, did you say it was Aikman, or maybe that's not a great example? But when you no, look at like, so the, many weapons. the Ravens, the teams that made Super Bowls, do you say it was John Harbaugh's system? Definitely so my, Harbaugh. Well, my point being, since day one, their Super Bowl number one, the Patriots have always put out there that it's they they have all the answers, okay, and that there have been books written, there have been several documentaries about the Patriots and their coaching staff. The the Crafts will tell you that they run all of their businesses a certain way, and the Patriots are just another business that they run a, a certain way, and. You know, it's almost like a formula and you plug certain things in and it works like clockwork. Okay, and I go back and you guys have heard me mention this. I go back to the quote from a book written five years ago about the Patriots and one of the Patriots assistant coaches. I think it was Joe Judge. Now, the Giants coach said, you guys feel differently about Tom Brady than we do. We think that we could win with any of the top 15 quarterbacks of the NFL. You give us any of the top 15 quarterbacks in the NFL, and we could have just as much success. So they have been digging at Brady over the years. And my opinion is that the cost of losing Brady to the Patriots wasn't just losing the player. What he saved them over the years and saved Belichick over the years wasn't just the salary cap money because Brady always took less year after year after year. After the Eagles Super Bowl where where Belichick benched Malcolm Butler, Tom Brady was forced to play with an unreachable incentive-laden contract. Tom fucking Brady was forced to play for incentives that were unreachable. 
after that year, which is an MVP season, which is uh, just think of that. Think right. of that. That's absurd. So, of course, he knew he was things were coming to an end. Uh, Bill Belichick made him get uh, treatment from his trainer up in a suite. He wouldn't let Alex Guerrero on the plane anymore. He wouldn't let him on the field anymore. So he wasn't working with Tom Brady. He was working against Tom Brady. The roster. Tom Brady was always, we always felt Tom Brady was left shorthanded offensively with the team. And if you look at the roster now, it's been depleting year after year after year. And that's why we look at the roster now and it's ugly. We know that the Patriots don't pay their players. We know that from seeing Brady over the years. So Brady made up for that Patriots not being able to pay players. And they actually, he helped players come to free agents would come to new England because you knew that you would reach a certain level of success playing with Brady. Well, now that Brady's gone, these players, they don't want to come to New England because Brady's not there, and it's just Belichick. And if Belichick treated Brady, the greatest quarterback of all time, a certain way, how is he going to treat other players? And think of Stafford saying, I don't want to go to New England, okay? There are a lot of former Patriots that played with Stafford and the Lions. You have Amendola, you have Jamie Collins, you have Trey Flowers. So those are guys that could have been in Stafford's ear telling him just how horrible it is to play in New England. Now, I am grateful for the last 20 years. And like I said, I'm not an idiot. Belichick deserves credit. But I just think his arrogance, the Patriots' arrogance over the years, has led to the split and led to Brady feeling like he needed to get out of here. And even up to the last phone call, Belichick still treated Brady like he was under contract and he was never going to budge. He was never going to pay Brady more than he makes. And it's been reported that Belichick makes $25 million a year. When we know the going rate for starting quarterbacks of a certain ilk in the NFL are now going for $35, $40 million a year. So I told, was telling you guys a long time ago that the time was coming up for Brady in New England. I saw the mm-hmm. writing on the wall. And now we see all these Patriots fans that are like dug in. I call them the the branch Belichickians, right? Because they're delusional. <laughs> right? Remember like uh, David Koresh, the branch Davidians? Well, these are the branch Belichickians. The, these people, like I, I go back to Jack Nicholson from um, w- what's that movie? He says, uh, you can't handle the truth. Oh, well, a few good men. Few good men. They, these Patriots fans, they can't handle the truth. Right, Marty? I mean, you have but, to learn to accept when it's over, right? Yes, absolutely. You can, you can right. come up with... You can come up with so many different like variations. You can go out and draft a Quincy Carter and just make it all about him. And he's a failed quarterback. And I think they knew. I think they knew Cam Newton was going to be a bust. But he'd take over a lot of the media attention and scrutiny. And he's an easy target for everybody to like stomp on. I just didn't think that that was even a good fit from the start. But, but the you bottom know line is this: once Troy Aikman, Emmett Smith, and Michael Irvin are gone, those are generational players. They're yes. not easily replaceable. Once they're gone, Johnson. they're and Jimmy Johnson. Once they're gone, they're gone, and it's over. Once right. Brady is gone, you can bring in Matthew Stafford. You can bring in Cam Newton. You can bring in whoever the hell you want. But he's not Tom Brady. So guess no. what? It doesn't matter. It's over. The sooner you learn to deal with that, the better off you'll be health-wise. And I think these people now rooting against Brady in the Super Bowl. I mean, it's not a healthy way to go about it because you're not look. You not. You don't know the facts first of all, on the split. And Brady, do you think Brady really wanted to leave his legacy behind in New England after 20 years? No, he was he was forced to. He couldn't work with this guy anymore. So he had to. And it's just 
I can't, I don't, for the life of me, I can't fathom these Patriots fans that are rooting against Tom Brady. And you're in kind of a pickle now because if the Chiefs win the Super Bowl, well, that's the first back-to-back Super Bowl winners since the 2003-2004 Patriots. And now you have a new dynasty which could potentially usurp or replace the old dynasty of the Patriots. So you're in a little bit of a pickle if you're not rooting for Brady and you're going to root for the Chiefs. You, you kind of are, are forced to a, into a corner here on what you want. But I'll tell you, if you're not rooting for Brady, you need to go back and get your facts straight because there's a reason that a lot of the players are coming to Brady's defense. Because over the years, Belichick and the Patriots took a lot of the credit away from the players. And it, and now it's coming back to roost. And Belichick's taken a lot of heat. And I would feel a little bit bad for him if I didn't think back to the day that he just let Tom Brady walk out the door. And that makes me so very angry. So, All right. Well said, sir. Well, on to some happier news, Johnny, and some happier conversation. The championship round of the 2000-2001 NFL season was held last weekend, nearly two weeks by the time uh, this will come out. (laughs) The championship round of the 2020-2021 season is now complete. It started with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in Lambeau Field to face the MVP Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers. Very strange, very exciting game. Started off real hot and then the mistakes crept in. Tom Brady with three interceptions. Aaron Rodgers with a pick. The Bucs pull it out in the end though, 31-26 to and just some insane late coaching decisions by Matt LaFleur. Specifically, the decision to kick a field goal on fourth and goal at the eight-yard line when you have the MVP, Aaron Rodgers, in the backfield with two minutes left and Tom Brady on the other side of the field. Like, what the fuck are you doing? And what about before half? Yeah, I mean, just a lot of bad decisions. Where do you, where do you even start? You, like, like Johnny said, you go back to that first half right before the end right there, but then even in late in the game when you've got – open field rogers had two chances to run it in right there as well no At way least, he was making no i think if we go back to the way i think the, yeah, i think you got it i think you let's got to go back to right the way there. the game started though because ernesto and i mentioned this to ernesto on our last podcast is we talked about um petton's defense and how brady had done against his defenses in the last he had defeated him eight times in a row um we had known that he doesn't change things up um, he's pretty standard, and so there was a chance for Brady to have a really good game, and so he came in, and they, the Buccaneers came out firing, and on, they were completing on the ball and getting first downs on third down after third down after third down after third down after third down, and they got out to a lead, and then Rodgers kind of got it going in the second quarter, uh, but then ended up throwing a pick um, right before halftime. And so the score was 14 to 10 Buccaneers when Aaron Rodgers threw that interception and they weren't really pushing the ball down the field and they were a little afraid of giving the ball back to Brady. And then the cornerback makes a great catch on the play, intercepts Aaron Rodgers. And we think as fans that the Buccaneers are going to try to kick a field goal and make it 17 to 10 and it's a fourth down. And we're like, uh, oh, they just need to get a few yards. They don't have any timeouts left. And they'll go out of bounds and then kick a field goal. And I think LaFleur wasn't paying attention because he was focused on the next thing offensively. I've heard that uh, defensive coach Mike Pettin was in the elevator down to the locker room at halftime. 
because he's usually upstairs in the booth. So your defensive coordinator was not there to watch the play. And so they were playing single high safety at, at that moment in time when all they needed to do was keep everything in front of them, keep Scotty Miller in front of them and just hold them to a field goal and not let anything get by them. But nope, they play single high safety. They had eight men in the box. For what reason? I have no idea. And Scotty Miller, who runs a 4-3-40, he uh, cruised by Kevin King and Tom Brady hit him with seconds to go in the first half, and the score was 21-10, to 10, and that kind of got things going for the Buccaneers, and I think that was the moment when the Buccaneers said, all right, we can do this, and so that's how the Packers were, 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 were devastated. You could tell on the sideline, they were like, oh my God, how the hell did we just let that happen? How the hell did we let that happen? Like, that was so stupid. Like, Kevin King, read your scouting report. Don't let Scotty Miller fly by you. The guy can run. Just don't let him fly by you. Mike Pettin, the since-fired defensive coordinator of the Packers, you cannot let that happen. you got to keep everything in front of you. But he didn't, uh, and he loses his job over the whole thing. So, And then the third quarter starts up. It's 21-10 Buccaneers. Aaron Jones gets the ball out in the flat from Rodgers, and Jordan Whitehead pops him. Just And it was the second time he forced a fumble on a, a pass in the screen to Aaron Jones. The last time in the first half, Tanyan for the Packers recovered it. This time, uh, Devin White... And the Buccaneers recover it, and the Buccaneers and Brady is able to complete a touchdown pass to Cameron Brait, make it 28-10. to 10. And at that point, I think you guys said it was starting to get away from the Packers. But as a Brady fan, I was still nervous because I know that Rodgers at times can make things look so methodical and good. And he did lead them back, and he made it you know, 28-17 and then 28-24 right around the, the fourth quarter switch. And I was like, oh, boy, here we go. But then in the fourth quarter, three times the Packers were given the ball back and Rodgers was given the ball back and with a chance to get it, the Packers the lead, and he failed. And it's funny because I've been listening to Packers radio. I had been listening to Packers radio the week before, and they were doubting Rodgers and saying that he is not, for as much credit and as much that people think that he's a good comeback guy in the fourth quarter, He's factually, he's not. He never has been. He takes too much time off the play clock. He lets it bleed down. And if it's not the perfect play, he, he doesn't he doesn't go with it. And so he's not the comeback player in the fourth quarter you think he is. And that kind of resonated with me. But watching the game on the field, I said to myself, he just looks too good. There's no way. You keep giving Rodgers the ball back. Brady's thrown interceptions, which were kind of like punts. And Evans should have had the second one. But they were still interceptions. And they were still giving Rodgers the ball back. And I said, it's just a matter of time until he gets them the lead. Well, he never did. He never delivered. And I just, it blew my mind. But Packers fans will say, see, told you. And it's like, okay, now I get it. Now I see why Aaron Rodgers is one and four in championship games. This is why. Go ahead. The other storyline in this game, too, of course, was uh, lack of pass interference being called. And then finally, at the end of the game, there is a pretty obvious uh pass interference that was called and uh, I mean, he had the, he it, had him the full jersey by six yards you had a full grasp you had yeah yeah they had been letting that i feel like they had been letting that go all game though and i think another thing that just makes it it's not one of those things where it's the reason they lost but it just it sucks that it ends that way it, it just leaves a sour taste in your mouth that well, let's get that, into the decision before that though so I was 31 to 23 when the Buccaneers kicked a field goal to go up by eight because the 
the Packers had gone for two on the previous touchdown, but Andamakan Sue tipped the ball and uh, Inquinius St. Brown dropped it in the end zone. Uh, so it was 31-23, and the Packers get the ball back. They're driving down the field. They get it to a first-and-goal situation. On third-and-goal, uh, Aaron Rodgers has the ball in the eight-yard line, forces it to Devontae Adams, but he, like Marty said in the text, he had green grass to his right all day long, right? Yes, I mean, absolutely. He could have ran. I've watched breakdowns of that, and there's a DB right behind him. He would have gotten caught. He would have gotten one, maybe two yards. It's not as open as you think it is. When you see the view, not from you know the TV angle, but like yeah. the Madden angle, yeah. and you can see the the players out in front of him. Go do yourself a favor and look that up. And I have, see, I've seen it many times. I just, it, I think he could have gone. I was watching at least gotten it to the one or two yard line to force a, force it to force the, the decision where Lafleur has to go for it. Do you know what I mean? And so I think that's he the has other to thing. go for it with eight yards. Well, and that's the other thing. And and so Rodgers in the post-game press conference throws his coach under the bus saying, I didn't know that we were going to kick a field goal on third down. Otherwise, I would have done something differently. Like, come on, dude. Like, stop being a selfish prick. We know that's your M.O., but, like, seriously, like, you're, everyone's in pain. Everyone knows, like, it's tough. But you don't need to throw your coach under the bus. So instead of taking any responsibility for not running the ball on third down or maybe maybe waiting a second later and waiting until Alan Lazard was coming wide open and not forcing it to – to Devonte Adams, which he right. did, would have been the better play. But no, it's oh, I didn't know that we were going to kick a field goal on fourth down. So da 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 da. And so he comes and, off and, the field. They kick the field goal. It's thirty-one twenty-six. They decide they have three timeouts left and a two-minute warning. Right. So so Lafleur, in his mind, he says we have four timeouts left if they kick the ball into the end zone. Right but they don't kick the ball into the end zone. They hadn't been kicking the ball into the end zone all day long. And so Mickens for Tampa Bay, um, like an idiot, he starts to run and then he slides down with 2.02 to yeah. go. And I'm like, like, are you what kidding are you me? What are you doing? You're saving them a timeout, you moron. Like, yeah. you got to wait until the two-minute warning to go down. Like, run 10 more <laughs> yards, please. And he doesn't. And you don't want to give the ball back to Brady in a two-minute situation ever. Um but you're right. The Packers would have gotten the ball back if there wasn't that pass interference call. But that pass interference call, he had the jersey by six yards. He had to call it. You just and it was Kevin King again. I mean, Kevin King, what are you doing, man? I mean, like if there's a goat of the day, I mean, it's Lafleur and Kevin King. I mean, and the Petten too. I so I mean, there's a lot of Packers blame to go around, and so Rodgers never gets the ball back and the. Um, Chris Godwin reverse play seals the first down in the in the Super Bowl berth for the Buccaneers, but their first since two thousand and two. What a game! Side note as well: all three championships will run through COVID and through Tampa Bay with the Lightning and the Rays. Oh wow, that is that is something. And so Tom Brady, the greatest player in human history, Earth, whatever sport you want to think of, <laughs> he takes this franchise that hadn't won a playoff game since two thousand two. Hadn't been to the playoffs since 2007. I see some Patriots fans saying Brady went to an all-star team, the same all-star team who was 5-11 two years ago, over 7-9 last year. Um, that the all-star team we're talking about? The same all-star team that hadn't won a playoff game in 13 years? That all-star All right. team? Well, speaking of the real all-star team, the Chiefs also secured oh. a, a Super Bowl berth, beating the pants off of the Bills 24-38. to Oh, my God, Marty. Look at that. 
Nice hat. Gross. He's got the Casey gear ready to go. Start doing the chop. (laughs) The Chiefs have now won five straight playoff games. It is the longest streak in franchise history. Uh, The longest ever streak was 10 straight playoff wins, 2001 through 2005 for the Patriots. Uh, Surprise, surprise. Although they did miss the playoffs in 2002. That's the uh, that was the year Brady blew his knee, right? No, uh, actually, he led the league in touchdown passes that year with 28. And they were nine and seven. Just to show you what a different time it was. They were nine and seven that year and they needed they missed out on the playoffs on a tie break on the final day. They needed I think it was Brett Favre to beat the Jets and and he couldn't do that. He did them no favors that day. And unfortunately they missed the playoffs travis kelsey uh getting the most receptions in a conference championship game with 13 both him and tyreek hill having plus 100 yard games beast Uh, josh allen just looked completely out of his depth and scared and unsure of himself and the team around him did not do him any favors johnny got anything to add on this game A hundred percent. We talked about this in the podcast last week. We said, what does Steve Spagnuolo, uh, the defensive coordinator for the Chiefs, like to do? He likes to bring pressure up the middle. Pressure up the middle. Pressure up the middle. That's what he does. That's his M.O. And the Bills, for some reason, were not prepared at all for this. Like, as good as they've been offensively all year long, I'm just, I was surprised to see that they had zero answers for, you know, Spagnuolo is not like he's a new defensive coordinator. He's been around for a long, long time in the NFL. The system has been similar. And I think the Bills' offensive line did Allen no favors. I think Allen himself did himself no favors. He looked uh, wide-eyed and not ready for the moments all day long. And they they did get a 9 nothing lead early after the McColl-Hardman fumble. But I think that that's the Chiefs almost saying to themselves, all right, let's uh let's put ourselves in a pickle here, tie one hand behind our back, and see how hard we can make our make it for ourselves, I, right? Because doesn't it seem like they always do something to start off games a little bit slow sometimes, and and then they come back. So <laughs> so what they do is they they say Hardman, you fumble, let's give them a touchdown, we make it nine nothing, Buffalo's ahead, and then we're gonna make make you make up for it. And then so Hardman had a touchdown yeah. after that, and and he was a big part of the comeback, and then. Once Mahomes and the Chiefs kind of got the wagon rolling, it was kind yeah, of like the unstoppable ball rolling downhill, and there's nothing that was going to stop it. And as soon as and, they ripped off 21 in the second half, I mean second quarter, like that's when like everybody nothing. just came, like nothing, and everything just came and, to a screen. You just saw like deflation out of that whole Bills team, like it was just done. Are you going to cover Kelsey or Tyreek yeah. Hill? You yeah. gonna, one of them? Can we get? Can you cover one? One of them? No, they said we're not going to cover either of them. We're going to let them both do whatever they want. I don't know. That that was a game too with with Mahomes and his foot, the toe. You know, they had five yards rushing. I just I thought the Bills would have played like you said, Johnny. You just can't let them get beyond your defense. And they could have kept everything right up in the center. Just keep everybody in front of you, bend but don't break. You know, try to give up something here and there. And you they were just, able. They were just defensively lost. You have to be able to run the ball in the Chiefs. That's what they do poorly is stopping the run. And the Bills, what we've seen week the past few week after week after week, ever since even Moss went out, they didn't trust Singletary as much. And they 
They even started going to Yeldon more, but they don't stick with the run, and it was just pass, 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 pass. And like Ernesto and I said in the last podcast, if you do that, then Spagnolo and the Chiefs defense are just going to pin their ears back and get after you all day long. And that's like like clockwork. It's exactly what happened. Okay, here we are. We have arrived at the finale of the 2020-21 season. Johnny, the Super Bowl is in front of us. Take us away. Okay, so yeah, we have the line. I was stunned. So my prediction on the line early before I saw the actual line was Chiefs would be minus six-point favorites. I mean, what did you guys think on the early line before you saw the line? Yeah, I was thinking it was going to be close to a touchdown. Yeah, I was, I, was, I, was th- I was thinking six and a half. I thought they yeah. played so we somewhere between six, six seven. seven. Yeah. Okay, but so then, the line But then comes you got to factor in the Brady effect. Right, I guess. So it's just still, it's, okay, we got Chiefs minus three and a half, over under 56 and a half. I find that to be a little odd. I think that most of the money has been on the Chiefs. Um, the, there is a Brady effect, I, I suppose. I think that this gives you a good opportunity if you're a gambler, because if you want to bet on the Buccaneers and Tom Brady, then this is another opportunity to correlate and don't just put straight money on the Buccaneers, uh, correlate the Buccaneers in a parlay with the over. Because if the, the if the Buccaneers win, the game's, I would say there's a 90% chance that the game's going to go over. You're not going to hold yeah. the Chiefs. The Chiefs are going to score at least 24, 27 points, most likely, right? 20, probably 24. So if you're going to win, the game's going to have to be in the 50s, probably the 60s. Uh, so if you're, if you're betting on the Bucks, may as well parlay it with the over, in my opinion. Um, but so a couple of things to watch out for in this game. So like we mentioned a few times, this is Steve Spagnolo's defense um, going against Brady. And we've seen in 2007 and 2011 what Spagnuolo did with those Giants defenses and the way that you use pressure and knowing Brady as we do as as uh, New England Patriots fans over the years, we know that the one way to get to Tom Brady is pressure up the middle. Uh, you have an outside pass rush guy. He will just step up in the pocket and pick you apart all day long. But if you can bring, bring the pressure up the middle and start hitting him early, that gets him rattled, gets him off his spot, and he gets a little uneasy. And that's he had he struggled in those two giant Super Bowls. So I'm a little bit worried about Spagnuolo and the Chiefs defense, and Chris Jones, and Frank Clark. And I'm worried about the Buccaneers' offensive line and how they they can hold up in this game. I think, like I said with the Bills, they need to run the ball. I think that the Buccaneers need to find a way to run the ball. You need to. They committed to it in the last two games against the Saints and the Packers, but they didn't run it well. I think you need to not only be committed to it, you need to be able to run it well with Leonard Fournette and Ronald Jones in this game because that'll help you – Keep the Chiefs' defense off balance. They won't be able to pin their ears back. And it's it's twofold. It'll keep Mahomes off the field. And I think what we saw in the 2018 AFC Championship game has some effect in this game as well. The game plan in that game was to keep Mahomes off the field as much as possible. And the Patriots were able to do that by running the ball, by just lining up and running the ball and holding the ball for long periods of time. And did it become a shootout in the end? Absolutely. But they were able to hold Mahomes down in the first half. And I think that is, needs to be your plan of attack as if you're a Buccaneers fan. And here's what I was watching last year's Super Bowl the other day, the 49ers against the uh, Chiefs. And I think the other thing you want to use against the Chiefs is their aggressiveness. They're going to be super aggressive. It's the Super Bowl. They're going to be dialed in. They're going to be going full tilt right off the bat. 
And I think you want to try to use that against them by using by going to misdirection plays. Now, I, the Buccaneers, to my mind, don't have a lot of that in their playbook that I've seen this year. But I'm hoping that Brady and Byron Leftwich, the offensive coordinator, maybe devise something over these last two weeks to because I think they can gain some serious yardage. I, like, like I said, I was watching the Niners the other day against the Chiefs Super Bowl last year, and they started off the game with a nice reverse Debo Samuel play and it got them 38 yards and I think that's if if they can do it I think that's what the Buccaneers need to do is use the Chiefs aggressiveness against them do you know what I mean yeah and I think that'll work so run the ball protect Brady up the middle I think the air and the ball out with Brady is not a recipe for success in this game especially if you're down early if you're gonna let Tyreek Hill go for 207 yards like you did on November 29th earlier this year in the first quarter uh, that's not a recipe for success. So you want to have a, a couple safeties back. I, I don't know that Whitehead's going to be back. I don't know that Winfield's going to be back. The two safeties that were out in the Packers game. So that's a concern. Um, I, that's why I'm surprised this line is three and a half. But it is. Um, th- those are my paths for the Buccaneers victory upset over the uh, Chiefs in this game. Well, I think if you're the Buccaneers, you got to look at this depleted offensive line for the Kansas City Chiefs right now. I think that's why. Eric Fisher. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's why you got to get away. The fact that you think that Mahomes is either going to scramble or they're going to play the rushing game. I think this is going to be a, a typical Mahomes game of buying time, getting out in the flat, using his six to seven targets, and just trying to play what you give them at first. But they're going to take those long shots here and there. But I think you got to come after them. I, like you said, Johnny, I think on that side – you got to fight intensity with intensity. Blitz, I think Mahomes? They, yeah. Really? I think so. I, 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 I don't I, think so. I, I, I wouldn't test, I want to test that foot. I want to see what he can do with I'm that. Worried. I'm worried about the Tyreek Hill factor, man. You blitz Mahomes and he can shred you. And that's the this is the ultimate issue with the Chiefs, in my mind, that I, that I kind of came to the conclusion over the last few weeks, is they have this ultimate combination of Tyreek Hill, who can stretch the field. And Tony Romo, I got to give him credit. He helped me come to this conclusion. It's that, so you can't cover Tyreek Hill with one guy. You have to have at least two guys deep to cover up against Tyreek Hill. And what that does is it leaves Travis Kelsey one-on-one to roam the middle of the field. And if you want to go two guys on him, well, then you're likely leaving Tyreek Hill one-on-one. So you have to pick and choose your battles. You got to find a way. And I think blitzing, I think Mahomes, you don't want to blitz. I think Brady in his old age, you could blitz him here, and and, and they probably will uh, because he doesn't want to get hit. And here's another stat. Brady has scored 35 points off of five turnovers, which is impeccable. I mean, to score five touchdowns off of five turnovers in your last two playoff games on the road is unbelievable. Do I I expect the Chiefs and Mahomes to turn the ball over multiple times and Brady to get touchdowns off it? No, I don't. That's another reason I don't. I, I look at the line and I'm like, really? Only three and a half? How? I mean, I don't. I just don't see how. But Eric Fisher is a big one, Marty. The Chiefs' offensive line, you, you, they can get to them. And I think Vita Vea being back, I think that they can hold the Chiefs' run game, which is basically non-existent as it is. But I think the front seven needs to be able to get pressure. Uh, yeah. They need. They need to get pressure because the pro, especially if Winfield and Whitehead are not in the game or are compromised health-wise at safety, because that that's that spells trouble with Kelsey and Hill. So. I don't know. Yeah. It's, no, it'll it's, be an it's, interesting it's, it's game. Tell. I'm I just excited. Think, I just think maybe you, you have a little science experiment in, in the first six, seven minutes, maybe first 
two two uh, you know offensive possessions for the Buccaneers in that game. I mean, excuse me, the Chiefs in that game, and really see if how depleted that offensive line is, and if you can create havoc in the backfield. I don't mm. know. I, I'm just not sure that foot. You know, he has not run the game where Henny came in. He's he took a beating in that game, and, and he only Dead. put a five yard five yards rushing in the last game. I think they're dead set on trying to protect him right now and not have him scramble and, and you know, take a three-step drop, sprint out to his opposite side, plant on that foot and throw multiple times a game. I just don't know if that, that foot's going to hold up. You know they're going to just keep shooting it up and, and keep taking yeah. it and, and keep that steel toe around that border and protect it. But I don't think as a coach, if you're Andy Reid, you want to see your quarterback have something anywhere around 55 to 40 yards rushing in that first half because it's getting away from what you're wanting to do. And here's yep. another staple of our show, right? Okay. What's a staple of our show? The Andy, Andy Reid on a yeah, bye week. Go ahead. Yeah, Andy Reid off a bye week. That's <laughs> there's that's another thing that scares the shit out of me. And it's just there's a lot of factors going against my guy here. Twenty six and five in his career after a bye week, including seven straight playoff wins. And the, and the point the point totals are, are absurd. They're in the thirties, Mike. Almost always. Oh yeah. He's been studying his post-game victory meal for a couple of weeks now. That boy's hungry. <laughs> He's got the Cheesecake Factory menu That's, down by yeah. heart. <laughs> Johnny, here's, here's another interesting stat. This is the fourth Super Bowl in which both starting QBs are entering the game with over seven-game winning streaks. The last time was when Tom Brady defeated Hall of Famer Kurt Warner in Super Bowl thirty-six. There yeah. it is. What's interesting about that, Ernesto, is I'm just putting that together now. So in that year, 2001, the last team to beat Tom Brady that year before that was Kurt Warner and the L.A. Rams came to Foxborough and they beat the Patriots and the Patriots returned the favor in the Super Bowl. So we fast forward to 2021. Jesus. Okay? The last man. team to beat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Tom Brady was the Chiefs on November 29th. So maybe fast forward a few weeks and now maybe they can return the favor again against the seven game win streak. Gotta watch Wapner. <laughs> I know. I, hey, man, I've been studying. I've been studying. So I'm, I'm sharp. <laughs> I am sharp. Johnny, Johnny, when you try to get in certain websites and you have the thing that screen pops up says, are you a robot? Do you have to hesitate for a second and think about it? <laughs> maybe I am. But we're talking about a redemption game, too, but a la 2018. I don't know if Nesso mentioned this when he opened this up for discussion, but we're talking about losing 37-31 to 31 to Tom Brady, meaning Mahomes and the Chiefs in, in the AFC Championship game. So a little bit of redemption time for Mahomes as well. And I want to throw one more stat in here because it just sits in my head and I can't let it go, and it's just a Brady goat key factor just to slip in here. This guy has played in almost 20% of all Super Bowls that's been played. You just put that in perspective. Out of that many Super Bowls that he's entered, 10 games and represented as one person in such an elite game is fucking astounding. Absolutely he, astounding. If Brady wins the Super Bowl, he'll, ha he'll have more Super Bowls than any other franchise. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, but, and, and the but list, I don't want him to lose. On. I don't want him to lose because losing is in the big game. We, we've seen how that it shouldn't, but somehow it taints your legacy when you lose in the <laughs> Super Bowl. It yeah. does, right? We've seen that. We've like, oh, it taints your legacy. You lose in the Super Bowl. But just getting there should be an accomplishment. I think that's two factors right there, which is another thing I was going to ask you about this whole thing. Like if Mahomes doesn't beat Brady now, he sets himself that for the back, if not to ever be considered to be a goat. Like it puts him out of reach. I don't understand Ooh, that aspect. I know. Maybe. Maybe. Because Brady will have beaten him two years ago and this year. Yeah. 
But it, this will be the the perfect passing of the torch, though. Uh-huh. It, it's either going to be like collecting the Infinity Stones, uh, with you know, <laughs> starting with Tommy Heineken, and then. <laughs> Breeze and Rogers. Breeze and Rogers. Right. And then yeah. Mahomes completes the quarterback infinity gauntlet, or it is the passing of the torch from Brady to Mahomes. Just what a fuck year, though. I mean, just to bring up you know, the elephant in the room being COVID, and you're the first team to play your own Super Bowl in your own home stadium, mm. and you're going to get how many X amount of fans in there? 25,000 uh, or 22,000, yeah. something like that. that. I mean, let's not get wrong. This is Tampa, so it's still going to be wild as fuck outside the stadium and throughout the whole city. But, you know, as far as that, to, to win that victory and you're going to be standing midfield, whoever the team is, hoisting that trophy, it's just such a weird, odd time. I don't know. Mm. It's such, such so, a slap in the face for that franchise in some ways if they go on to win. An interesting uh, note with the Super Bowl is supposed to be a neutral location, and it's just happenstance that it happened to be uh, Tampa Bay in the game. The Bucks will not be allowed to use their touchdown cannon when they score. Interesting. Why? It, I don't a, know. That's, it, a I home, that's a home field prop. Yeah. Oh, come on, man. That's not cool. I mean, not like I, I'm in love with the cannon, but I'll, I'll, I'd be like, I, okay, okay, you're lo- you're losing home fans in your home stadium Super Bowl. Can I just get one cannon fire? Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, yeah. You're the only team to ever do it. You should get yeah. a few things. I mean, I, I, I guess that I guess they they get to sleep at home and you know have the home locker room oh, and whatnot. Man. But I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, hey, come on. How cool would it be if they scored? You look up there and it's like all start and like work done. And, oh, and I know. Set, it's like lighting the torch and pulling, you know, like just cranking it off. That'd be <laughs> fucking badass. Speaking of cranking it off, man, Johnny, if they win, it, we won't even be able to speak to him for several days. He'll just like, oh, I, I will surface in his home will be like just covered in a thin film. His poor wife. Every other wow. house, with every other house within a four four block ratio is going to lose power because he's going to be using it all. Oh, <laughs> I, <know>. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you guys have felt this from me for so long, and I know you hate me for it, but you know, in in this game, we know it's Brady versus Mahomes, but in a lot of ways, it's been about Brady versus Belichick, and it's just. It's just because it hurts. It hurts so much, and this should never have come to this. It should never, ever have come to this, and that's why it's like the the further Brady goes, the better it feels, and you have more vindication that it was Brady and it wasn't Belichick. And just one more thing, uh, t- this is the tenth time that Tom Brady is in a playoff game as a underdog. In those games, he is now six and three as an underdog. Another good stat to hold on to. Don't forget your Girl Scout cookies. Oh, tag, okay. tag alongs. Tag alongs. Yeah. Don't forget to mention your tag alongs. What? <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm so lost right now. <laughs> Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell, the two girls got oh, no. the tag alongs. Oh. That's an original. I came up with that one. Jesus. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah. And both Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell will be part of this game in. A capacity. I mean, we'll see what kind of impact they wind up having on the game, but they have they have ridden on some mighty large coattails uh, to get to this game, and I am, for one, frankly, a little disgusted that either of them, one is walking away from this with a ring that they don't deserve. So, does Antonio they, Brown already? 
does he have a ring? Was it was he? No. No, not yet. Okay. No. Nope. Okay. Uh, so the last thing that we have to do today is our predictions. And we've had some listeners contact us. Uh, shout out to all you guys. So we have some listener predictions as well. I'm going to start off with a friend of yours, Johnny, who is uh, listening to us out of Chicago. Uh, I guess he grew up in Providence. Former uh, roommate. Nice. Nice. Anter Takur? Anter Takur, yeah. Very Sound cool. like a hockey player. Love that guy. <laughs> So uh, shout out to Anter, and he says that he's got thirty-one twenty-eight bucks in the over. Whoa! So All we right. went we went to the uh, snowball game against the Raiders together way back when. Oh, the nice! Bir- the birth of the Tom Brady legacy. What was that one again, Nesto? Thirty-one twenty-eight. Yeah. Yeah, I got a fellow listener, Luke Martell, who chimed in earlier today. Uh, very much like you, Johnny, uh, just wanting to see nothing but Brady's success since uh, moving on from the Patriots has been riding this uh, Buccaneer ship from day one. And he is, pre- he is uh, predicting final score, Tampa Bay Buccaneers 34 and Kansas City Chiefs 27 and covering the over as well. And next up, we had Papa Squat Griswold picking the Chiefs 31 over the Bucks, 27, also taking the over there. I have Chris out of Austin, friend of mine, went to college together. He's taking Chiefs 35 over the Buccaneers at 31, taking the over there. And last up for listener predictions, uh, we have my dad and his girlfriend, Jen. Pop is taking the Bucks 43 to 35, and... Jen is taking the Bucks 34 to 31. Definitely a trend here. Yeah, I'm surprised, but I like it. Okay. Um, I guess I'll go first with, with my prediction. I have the Chiefs winning 33-31. I don't think they cover. Taking to cover the over, but not covering the spread. Yeah. All right. Well, it was all smoking mirrors, Johnny. I'm taking the hat off because I'm taking the Buccaneers. Oh, come on. I am. Are you hating me for it? A little bit. <laughs> yeah, stay strong, man. Stay stay anti-Brady. Stay strong? Stay anti-Brady. You want me to stay anti-Brady? No, <laughs> I, I've, I've been thinking about it all freaking day and looking and just I just think that there is some certain magic that it is going to just happen. I don't know. That line is know. something, man. That line, yeah. it's, it's something. Because like it's, we all said, that line should have been six or seven. Yeah. You know? And, 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 it, and Brady maybe maybe makes it five or four, but it was three to start. It's up to three and a half now. But that's weird. I, I don't know. I mean, It took me back. I was expecting, like, you, like we talked earlier before we got into this, like, I was expecting six and a half easily. Easily yeah. to start out. But something's telling me that, I don't know. In Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay right there playing. I had it written down. I didn't change it. I wrote it down like at 444 today, and I, I initialed it. I got the Buccaneers at 30 to 27 over the Chiefs and covering by, by half point over the spread right there. All right. Well, I'm in a good spot, fellas, because before the playoffs started, I gave you prop bets, futures bets. Well, I, probably halfway through the season, I said, put your money on the Chiefs to win the Super Bowl. 
And then before the playoffs started, I said, I got money. I'm putting money on the Buccaneers. And I said, I'm putting a little bit on the Ravens. Those are my three teams that I had. And so I am in a win-win situation, gentlemen. Good for you. Uh, I mean, I'm in an all-profit all day long. Um, just, you know, hopefully, hopefully my guy comes through. Uh, but my head... This is a matchup, like I said, the Spagnola thing scares me. He knows Brady. He's performed well against Brady. And then I just, the Buccaneers, the, they scared me against Green Bay because uh, I thought they would do dumb stuff. But, and I thought Rodgers would draw them off sides def- like defensively a few times, but they didn't. They stayed disciplined uh, for the most part. That and, and I feel like all year long, They've kind of been progressing on that front as far as not making the the usual Tampa dumb decisions and, you know, less sacks, less penalties, less turnovers. And, yeah, obviously I'm going to go with my guy. I'm going to go with with the Buccaneers. And my score is going to be Buccaneers 32, Chiefs 29. So Bucks in the over if you're going to take them. Like I said, take them in a parlay. And, you know, I just think, I mean, I'm not going to go against my guy. But right. I, I, I'm a nervous. I'm a nervous because the Chiefs seem to Chiefs seem to have it all. But we'll see. It should be an interesting game. Oh, and then the other thing I want to tell you guys: there's a, a good prop bet. I think is also uh, Brady for MVP. I think is plus two ten or plus two fifteen. I just think if Pretty especially good value. If, yeah, I think that's good value. I think especially if Antonio Brown plays that which I'm not sure he's going to, but the Bucks have a lot of weapons and likely not to be one guy to dominate everything. And like, I don't think Evans goes for 150 or Godwin 150 or Brown. I, I just think that it's going to be spread out. So if the Bucks win, I think it's going to be likely to be Brady as MVP in this game. So getting him at plus 210, plus 215 is worth a, a little bit of shot on, on that. And on the flip side, um, I know Mahomes isn't great value as far as MVP, but he's probably a a good bet as well, because I don't think there's a chance in hell that the NFL would let the MVP go to Tyreek Hill. I just can't, I could never see the NFL letting that man take the Super Bowl MVP trophy home (laughs) than being interviewed. And if he goes for 200 yards, like he did the last game, I just can't, I can't see them doing it. So I think it would have to go to Mahomes or Kelsey. Yeah, I like Kelsey. I mean, I know you don't like him. You think he's probably the most two charismatic, yeah, crazy, tight, tight ends facing each other in the Super Bowl between him and Gronkowski. They love the spotlight. I don't like him, but he's yeah. great. I don't like yeah. him, but he's great. Yeah. And I don't like Tyree Kill. Nobody should like Tyree Kill. I mean, that guy is a bad, no. bad, bad human being. But, man, is he fast. I mean, he nope. is just so freaking fast. I don't – I mean – Nobody should like Antonio Brown either. Right, right. That's another another guy. Right, that's not going to get MVP. I promise you that. <laughs> <laughs> that was a little bit more guaranteed for yeah. sure. Well, guys, we have gone way over. We are nearly at the projected length of the weekend's halftime show, uh, so we're gonna have <laughs> so we're gonna have to cut it here. But uh, it has been a double stuffed uh, episode of the Green Mountain Sports Roundup. Our 69th episode. Nice. Uh, thanks to all the listeners, especially everybody who reached out with predictions today. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, to everyone else, please uh, get in touch with us because we love to hear from you. And if you talk to us, we'll talk about you on the show. It's really that simple. So, like, anything? share, download. 
Yeah, subscribe. Oh, Anything I, was, else, boys? I, was, I was talking about how I-69. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Our third Super Bowl together, right, on this show? Yeah, holy yeah. smokes. Wow. Here we go. Have a good night, everyone. Go go TB12. It's uh, SBTBX. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> good night, everybody. Thank you.